0: Open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 26, and please follow as I read beginning at verse 1, ending with the 23rd verse. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the hymn book rack, the text is on page 1107, Acts 26, 1 through 23. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised to our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from synagogue, um, one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to prosecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun blazing around me, my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, 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 Why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets And Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we look into this text. Father, I pray your Spirit, who is present with us because we have gathered in Christ's name, would burn upon our hearts the truths that we will examine. Father, for those who know you as Jesus, as Lord and Savior, we pray, Father, that you would give them hope that there's more to this life than what we experience here, that there is a day coming when the dead will be raised incorruptible, when we will have bodies like our Lord's glorious body and enjoy the company of each other and all who love you forever and ever. But, Father, we would also pray that you would be with those who are skeptics like Paul was, who don't yet trust Christ as Savior and Lord, we pray that you would work grace deep into their hearts today, that you would give them faith to believe. Father, they might not see a bright light and hear you speak from heaven, but I pray that they would hear you speaking within, and you would show them the light of the glorious gospel, and that you would give them life that's eternal. Father, be with me as I speak. Protect me from saying things that are not accurate. I pray, Father, that we would not see the one who delivers the message, but the message itself. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Government buildings are often designed with the dramatic in mind. The architects of the Roman Empire were great at creating dramatic settings with stone and bronze and wood. So much so that modern architects have often copied their Roman counterparts when they're designing space that they hope will inspire awe or even be intimidating. As you know, many of the state houses throughout the United States are patterned on Roman architecture. Many of our court buildings are, and our courtrooms as well, built on the Roman model. The chamber in which Paul gives his defense for his ministry would have been designed in this way. Paul speaks, we are told, in the audience room 2523 of the palace of the Roman governor, Festus. When Paul presents his case in this hall, it is filled with imposing people. In 2523, we read that the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city are por- part of the audience. We know from other places in history that five commanders of five Roman regiments were stationed at Caesarea, where this all takes place. They would have been present, each with their aides. The Roman civil servants who were a part of the Roman governor's retinue and a part of the city government would have been present. The Jewish king Agrippa, who has come to pay his respects to the newly appointed governor Festus is present. And he is present with his staff, with his queen, with his servants, we read in 25, 23. The Jewish leaders of the religion who are present to make their case are present to make their case against Paul. So when we consider that dignitaries like these typically consider their perceived importance to grow as they surround themselves with more and more people to attend to them, it's my guess that there are probably 150 to 200 people or more who are present in this imposing chamber. The Roman governor, Festus, has convened this august group so that Jewish, the Jewish king, Agrippa, can meet a man that the go- governor holds in his custody and that man is the Apostle Paul. The Jewish king has requested a meeting with the Christian missionary zealot, about which he has heard so very much. We know that from 25 to 22. The Jewish religious leaders want Paul dead. The Roman governor has heard the charges that the Jews have made against the Apostle, but to him these have no basis at all in Roman law. Governor Festus has rightly concluded that the dispute is a religious one among Jews about their own religion that does not rise to the level of a violation of Roman law. In the words of the governor himself in 2519, the dispute is about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. Since this issue was a Jewish one, The Roman governor has asked Paul if he wants to go to Jerusalem, the capital of the Jewish religion, and to be tried in that very religious place, the place where Jewish doctrine is best understood. He has refused this opportunity and has exercised his right as a Roman citizen to be tried in the Supreme Court of Empire in Rome. Paul, by his teaching, has driven the leaders of the Jewish religion over the edge. They want him dead. He's awaiting transport to Rome. Now imagine this likely scene. A grand stone chamber adorned with the furnishings and trappings of the Roman Empire. Scores of military men and their aides, scores of civilian Government officials present. The Jewish monarch, Agrippa, sitting in a place of prominence, probably next to Governor Festus. And all the regalia of their office is displayed. The assembly is brought to order by a Roman guard. Agrippa's voice echoes through the chamber. Paul, you have permission to speak. Now Paul knows that Agrippa Agrippa's father slew the Apostle James. He knows that his grandfather beheaded John the Baptist, and his great-grandfather was responsible for putting to death the infants around Bethlehem and in Bethlehem following Jesus' birth. He also knows that part of the purpose for this gathering is to come up with some chargeable offense against himself, against Paul, that can be sent along with Paul to Rome for his trial. The space, the furnishings, the audience should all conspire to intimidate the apostle. Paul, the doctor of Jewish law, gets up from his seat. His chains clank on the floor as he approaches the two potentates of Palestine. He lifts his hand, one. And his hands are in chains, we know from twenty six twenty nine and he speaks boldly as he addresses the jewish king twenty six two to three He says this King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The apostle begins his defense by establishing his credentials. He has been known in Jewish religious circles as one who is orthodox. He says that the Jews present know that he was raised as a child prodigy under the leading Jewish scholar of the day, Gamaliel. The Jews present also know that he has been raised in the strictest sect of Judaism. He was raised as a Pharisee, 26, 5 through 7. He says that that was the strictest group. The Pharisees were the religious fundamentalists among the Jews. They were the conservatives who accepted the Old Testament Scriptures as god containing God's revelation to men and women. They believed the Scriptures were to be taken literally, not as pious metaphor. What Paul is doing is establishing that he's not one who is a creative theologian. He is not one to come up with things that are novel religiously. He tells the assembly in 26, 6 through 7, that he is being held as a prisoner for teaching what the sacred scriptures of the Jewish faith record as the promise of God to the patriarchs of Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This promise is that God will one day raise those who have died. He says the fulfillment of the promise that death is not the end of our existence, not the end of loving relationships, not the end of our growth, the end of personal enjoyment, is what always motivated God's chosen people to faithfully serve him. Everlasting life with God in a body raised from the grave is part and parcel of the covenant that God made with Abraham when he promised to him a heavenly homeland, a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, Hebrews eleven ten. 10. Abraham lived his life for God, expecting that the promise that one day he would be raised from the dead would be fulfilled for him and for all of those who walk by faith in Messiah. This hope of resurrection was the teaching the Lord God affirmed to Abraham in Genesis 22, when God commanded Abraham to slay his son, his only son, on the altar of sacrifice, but then at the last moment provided a ram and told him to sacrifice that ram in Isaac's place. When Isaac, who was good as dead, got up off that altar, God had given to Abraham and Isaac a picture of the resurrection hope that they believed the writer of Hebrews writes the commentary on the dramatic event in Hebrews 11:19. He says there, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Paul argues his innocence by asserting that he is accused of teaching a doctrine that has been believed by God's people forever. That what he believes and teaches, Jehovah has announced to the world to be the truth about God's completed redemption of sinful men and women. God's redemption of sinners is a redemption that includes not just eternal life as disembodied spirits, but ultimately eternal life, eternal life with him in resurrected bodies that are made suitable for life on a new heaven, in a new heaven, and a new earth. Now, you wouldn't want to debate with the Apostle Paul, I assure you. I mean, he is a genius when it comes to, to debate. Look at what he does here. He summarizes the teaching that got him in trouble with a rhetorical question that causes everyone in the room to grapple with their view of their God if they have one. The question he asks is this. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You see where he's going with this? If his hearers believe in a God, is not the possibility that their God can raise the dead a plausible one? Do you find the idea of the resurrection of dead people, implausible at times? I have held the ashes of a quite large man in my hand in a nine by nine by nine container. And I looked at that container, and you have to think, how can God resurrect that man from those ashes and give him a body that is identified in some way with the ashes that are in that container. In the great movie of naval warfare during the 1800s, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, there is a burial at sea. A Very beautiful Anglican committal service for burial at sea is red. Then the bodies of sailors who have been sewn into their own hammocks, hammocks weighted down with metal, are reverently committed to the waves. Now, we have some idea of what happens to bodies that are buried at sea. How can God reconstitute those bodies when Christ returns to earth to raise the dead, as scripture says he will do in 1 Corinthians 15, 20-24. through 24. If you struggle with this idea that's one of the core teachings of Christianity, If you struggle with what Christians have affirmed since the beginning and what they have said since the second century in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, which means eternity experienced in a body that comes out of the grave. If you struggle with that, we here understand it is not easy for us to believe in things that we haven't experienced we haven't witnessed but think about this in 2016 a pew research poll showed that 76 percent of americans believed in a god who can be reached through their prayers now i hope the response here is pretty close to 100 percent do you believe in a god who hears your prayers if you can believe in a god who is big enough to hear you and to hear all the people who pray to him at any one time and can grant requests, let's ask Paul's question, why should you think it's incredible that God raises the dead? Do you believe in a God who created the universe and who built into it the laws that sustain it, that keep it from imploding? Do you believe in a God who filled planet Earth with animal and plant life and gave the planet everything that's necessary to sustain that life? Then let me ask the question again. Why should you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Where do you come down on the issue of the resurrection of the dead? Is the teaching credible for you? Saturday a week ago, I buried my mother. I preached her funeral service and led people in worship as they sang hymns that I chose that were her favorite hymns, hymns she sang all the time. My parents lived in Mount Holly, New Jersey, 50 miles from Pat and me. Monday is typically preacher's day off. I would say that 26 of the Mondays in any given year, they came to spend time with us and our girls. They came to visit in our home and worked side by side with us as we did chores. In September of 2010, my dad died, and in March of 2011, my mother came and lived with us. My parents were wonderful parents. It's not fair that I had parents that were this good. And we were exceptionally close to them. Many, many people have asked me, How could you lead worship and preach her funeral service? I want to tell you, it was hard, and I came close to losing it at times. I don't know that that showed. But belief that we will be reunited someday, not just as spirits, but as complete humans as God made us to be, made that possible. The certain hope of bodily resurrection in heaven for those who die in faith drastically changes a believer's views of terminal illness, serious sickness, death, and funeral services. In First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul explains that difference. He writes, we do not grieve like the rest of men and women who have no hope. When we or our believing loved ones face possible death, When we bury our dead, we grieve. We are not Stoics. But through the tears, we see the resurrection. It wasn't just Paul's teaching about the resurrection of the dead that got him arrested and made people want him dead. It was also his belief and his teaching that Jesus of Nazareth was the Old Testament Messiah that the prophets spoke about and wrote about, that he suffered and died to purchase God's forgiveness for all of those who will submit to his lordship and follow him, and that God, in raising Jesus from the dead, had declared that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable as payment for the sin of all who believe. Paul tells the assembled crowd how he came to believe Jesus to be God's remedy for the human sin problem. Paul had heard stories about Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, and he found them to be incredible. In 26.9, he tells his audience that he was just like the people who won him dead. He says, I too was convinced that that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did. In 26:10 through 11, we read that Paul related with the authority of the chief priest, he put Christians in prison in Jerusalem, that he voted with the majority to put Christians to death. He tells us that. He also tells us that he tried to force Christians to renounce their faith. He tells us that he traveled to cities outside of Israel to persecute Christians. He tells the court that wiping out the followers of Jesus and their teaching had become an absolute obsession, his word, with him. But one day, while he was on a 150-mile trip to Damascus, to persecute more Christians who trusted people who trusted in the risen Christ Christ appeared to him and spoke to him in 26:15 saying I am Jesus who you are persecuting in destroying and working to destroy the church of Jesus he was persecuting Jesus the very the church is Jesus body this meeting with Jesus was no dream it was no hallucination In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-8, Paul teaches that the risen Savior appeared to him in the same way the risen Savior appeared on Easter Sunday to close women followers, to Jesus' apostles, and to the hundreds of others between Easter Sunday and Ascension uh, who got to see Jesus. Jesus was physically present with those, and he was physically present with Paul. Paul was so certain that he had seen and dialogued with the resurrected Jesus that he was willing to give up everything he was to follow Jesus. That included his tremendous reputation among the Jews, his lucrative career as a prominent rabbi, his freedom, he's already been in jail close to two years, and really his very life. He dies as a martyr, and early on, he believes that that is going to be his ultimate fate. Paul met the risen Christ and was persuaded by the evidence that Jesus was the Old Testament promised Lamb of God who takes away sin. The gospel stories the Christians had told were real. He trusted the gospel, and he received Christ as his Savior and Lord. And that encounter changed him from prosecutor of Christians to one who now stands before this group of Jews and Romans, people who will determine whether he lives or dies, and he confidently, confidently can say in 26, through 23, I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light and truth, that's truth about the, uh, life after death and resurrection, to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now, none of Jesus' pre-resurrection followers believed he had been risen from death until they met him. When they heard his tomb was empty, they looked for other explanations, other explanations. Than resurrection. They said someone has taken his body. Or like Thomas, I'll believe that he's raised when I can put my finger where the nails went and I can thrust my hand into Jesus' side where the sword went. His followers were all doubting and unbelieving until they saw, they heard, and they touched the risen Christ. But after they get to do that, they tell everyone they can that his atoning death has been stamped with God's seal of approval in his resurrection from the dead. No threats, no amount of prison time, not even the prospect of death can stop them from testifying of the fact that Jesus' body has come out of the tomb. This radical change in them from committed unbelief to a faith worth suffering and dying for, when these skeptics meet the risen Jesus, is part of the foundation for our believing in the gospel and our confidence in the great hope that lies before us, the redemption of our bodies, Romans eight twenty-three. The Wall Street Journal on March 31st of this year had an amazing story uh, about the resurrection. And they said, like we all know, there's no way to explain how this motley group of people ended up becoming the dominant religion in the Roman Empire in such a short period of time, absent an actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Paul tells the Jewish king, the Roman governor, the rest of his audience in 26:23 that the Scriptures teach that Jesus was the first to rise from the dead, the clear implication being, Paul's teaching being, that there were to follow. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, he will write, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ... All will be made alive. My belief in that resurrection made it possible for me to do my mother's funeral. I was grieving. I'm still grieving. But I knew the separation wasn't forever, and that knowledge got me through. But belief in the resurrection did something else. It compelled me to do her funeral. How is that? I knew that there would be family members present, lots of them, who give no indication of trusting Jesus as their Savior. And though Mom had a wonderful pastor who assisted me in her funeral, I knew her better, far better, obviously, than he did. And I wanted the unbelievers present to know as I rehearsed her life for them that she can only be understood, only explained by her faith in Jesus and her obedience to him. And my hope is that through the gospel that she lived, that she shared with them, that was preached at her funeral, that they will be changed. And here is why I long for that to happen. In Acts 24, 15, Paul preaching an earlier but similar resurrection sermon says, I have the same hope as these men, Paul's Jewish accusers, that there will be a resurrection, listen to this, of both the righteous and the wicked. It's not only believers in Jesus who will be raised and give, be given bodies suitable for eternity. Everyone who has ever lived will experience resurrection. And this is incredibly bad news for non-Christians because Revelation 20, 11, 13 to 11 through 13 tells us that after the resurrection, each one of us, everyone who ever lived, will be judged according to everything that we have done in this life. And since we know, and the scriptures tell us, that all have sinned and come short, of God's absolute standard of sinlessness, of holiness, those who have rejected God's remedy for the sin problem in Jesus' sacrifice, we are told Second Thessalonians 1-9, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. Do you believe what you sang last week in the hymn, Christ the Lord is Risen Today? Do you believe that may like him, like him we rise? Could you sing it with gusto? Knowing that Jesus is your Savior, that your sins are gone, and that when you face God in judgment, you will be acquitted of your sins because of your faith in Jesus. If not, you can have him now. This can be your experience, your Damascus road. Ask Christ to come into your life and forgive your sins. Tell him that you want to follow him. You want him to be your Lord. Father, speak to our hearts now. Father, it would be our great joy if everyone who's assembled here this morning will be at your throne one day to be acquitted of their sins and to enter eternal life in bliss and joy. Oh, Father, we pray that you would work to that end. For those who have not received Jesus, we pray that even now in the quietness of these moments, that they would acknowledge that they have sinned against God, committed little sins, bigger sins. It doesn't matter. Sin is is that which condemns us to a life apart from Christ now and forever. And, Father, help them to look to the cross, to the risen Christ. Ask him to come into their lives, to do that in a prayer of faith right now,